Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now here's your host. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in. This week I'm really excited because I got to sit down with a longtime friend of mine, Brandon Whitfield. Full disclosure, we're going to talk a lot about AST, Autism Spectrum Therapies, as a part of the Learn Behavioral Network. The Learn Behavioral Network is the organization I work for and produces this podcast. And while we celebrate our organization and some of the things that we're doing, uh, this conversation is more than just about us. Back to Brandon. He's doing so much for Learn's DEI initiative and for the field of applied behavioral analysis as a whole. While we talk a lot about the Black Masters cohort, it's not the only initiative that we have in place. There are affinity groups, collaboration events, support systems, all set up to help with our cultural competence and cultural awareness. This conversation has so many facets to it, I hope we can revisit in a deeper dive in the future. But for now, I'm proud that we recognize that by improving the experience of our staff, we're improving the experience of our clients. And by creating a safe and inclusive environment for our staff to thrive, whether that be diversity through ethnicity, sexual orientation, or religion, we are better mirroring the population that we're serving and providing a better experience for our community. Brandon Whitfield is a proud Cal State University Long Beach graduate. He joined AST in 2009, earned his master's degree in education in 2013 and became a BCBA in 2014. Currently, he's a senior clinical director for AST and his passion for ABA and social justice led him to contribute to Learn's ongoing DEI efforts. I hope you enjoy this conversation and learn a lot from Brandon Whitfield. Brandon, thank you so much for being here. I am so excited for this conversation that you and I have had multiple times, but now we get to have it on this platform. Just thank you so much for being here. It, man, thank you for having me. Dude. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to have this conversation. I have other people here for a change. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so before, gosh, you're doing so many things now, and I want to dive into all those things. But before we get into that piece, I think it's important to hear your story and share with us your story of how you got into applied behavior analysis and how you got to the point where you are today. So can you tell us about you a bit? Yeah, I mean, give, give you guys some context, man. I, I like to kind of start from from the very, very beginning, man. I'm a Southern born. Uh, I was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, and we, we moved to, to California like in the late 80s. Uh, but I was still Southern raised, man. So, uh, you know, I, I keep my Southern roots. And that that is really kind of like just shuffling me to where I am today. You know, my uh, mother, father, grandparents, all in academia. Um, but, you know, they've always heavily, heavily influenced my thought process uh, in the form of like just social justice, man. So that's always kind of been, been my thing. Um, but in terms of like what got me into ABA, um, my my dad was a, uh, a school counselor uh, and school psychologist, um, and he actually had a an intern that worked for AST. And uh, right when I was uh, graduating college, um, he he told her about me, and uh, she gave him her her card, you know. And um, at the time, I was actually working for a a, a dual diagnosis residential treatment facility. 
Um, and I had also also kind of moonlighting working uh, for this other agency that and I actually had a kid who had autism. So it just kind of worked out perfectly to, to find out about ABA. Um, so I went in for an interview um, and met with some really great people actually uh, walking out. You, you've probably heard the story before, but uh, walking out of my interview, I ran into Rob. That was actually the first time actually meeting Rob, uh, Rob Robert Hawk, for, for folks that know or don't know him. Um, that was my first time meeting him. And, you know, that was really, you know, where I started working with AST, working in the field, um, and immediately just really kind of fell in love with, with what ABA is, what it has to offer, you know, um, the previous job that I had working in the dual diagnosis residential treatment facility um, and then moonlighting on the side. Um, I was working with a lot of older people. Uh, I had a couple of clients that were older with autism and just kind of working with AST and kind of finding out about early intervention. It just really made me feel like I could make a bigger impact, you know, doing early intervention, working with ABA and, and working with a, a younger population. So, and it also, kind of helped that I was, you know, I was kind of good at it. And, uh, you know, I always ended up making really good progress with the clients that I work with. And I stuck with it, man. Everybody else would, you know, people would tell me, hey, you're doing a pretty good job with this. You should really look into making a career out of this. And so pretty soon after, I jumped into the, uh, you know, jumped into a master's program, knocked it out, became a BCBA in 2014. And I haven't looked back since, man. That's, so that's the... It's great. By way, like why, how, how I got here. Yeah. I love that. And I love that your, your dad kind of made a little bit of that introduction for you. I think that's such an important part of the story for you also, because you are such a family guy. And I can say that because I know you so well, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Don't let him hear you say that though. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. He won't let me hear you. <laughs> <laughs> so Brandon, we've heard the like story from like how you got here, but tell us like, what are you doing in the day to day now? Like, what does your job entail today? Yeah, so I am the senior clinical director for uh, AST's Beach Cities region. So my day-to-day, -day, I'm overseeing essentially like three territories. So I've got all of Los Angeles, South Los Angeles, um, West LA, West San Fernando Valley, and all of Bakersfield. So I've got right now, last time I checked my roster, I have uh, approximately 231 employees under me, um, about 30 supervisors. And yeah, we're, we're, we're focused on, on, on providing quality services and, and growth, man. We've got some really good things, good things going right now. I've got a ton of, uh, of talent that's that's chomping at the bit to pass their exam and become behavior analysts. I've got like stellar, stellar um, managing behavior analysts or just brainy excellent. They they are the oracles of 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 ASCMI opinion that these people know ABA like the back of their hands. And so I'm just working to, to guide them and give them the you know the the launch pads to be their best selves. So that's what I'm doing on the day to day. And if there's an occasional fire I got to put out, that's what I'm doing. There's always the occasional fire. <laughs> just a little bit, you know, just trying to expand the embers, man. So, you know, yeah, we're, we're putting fires out occasionally. But yeah, that's, that's you know, besides the, all the DEI stuff that I'm doing, like that's that's what I'm doing on the daily, um, doing, doing clinical director work. 
one thing that you've mentioned to me before is that um, it was kind of hard for you to forge your path when you didn't see representation and diversity sort of at leadership levels, right? Um, How has that shifted over the course of your career and how has that shaped you as a leader? You know, it's, and that's a good question. I mean, yeah, it, it's it's always difficult. I think it's difficult in every facet of, of, of you know, in every industry, right? Like when when people that are like in entry level positions are are looking at leadership, and you're not seeing people that look like you in some of those higher level positions, you, you tend to just assume that uh, those positions aren't for you. Um, and it, it it was that way for me. Um, but you know, I, I think my my route was really unique because this, despite those feelings, I had a, a ton of people really just pushing me, man. And and that that was really helpful. You know, I mentioned Rob earlier. He he was definitely one of those people that was very encouraging about, hey, you you should look into doing this. You know, I think about other leaders that I came across, people like Rahil, like all of these, all of these, you know old school AST people that, that worked with us were like, Hey, you should really do this. You have a, a, a future here. Um, that was really helpful, you know, despite some of those, um, you know, setbacks that I, that I really saw, um, you know, but I, you know, I talked to other people, um, across, across the industry, people that, that look like me and, and they still have that, that same mindset, you know? And so mm-hmm. when I look at what, you know, our organization has done across the, you know, the years, you know, working with people like, like Justin and, and seeing him really uh, being kind of a mirror, you know, obviously I'm not a Harvard guy, you know, yeah. but it, he, he, he's, he's still a, a, a black male and, and you don't really see black males in, in the field of ABA. And so that is just something that really kind of like made me feel like, okay, there, there is a, a space for me here, you know? Um, and so, that that's really what's getting encouraging, and you yeah. see more and more people um, join the ranks to see that there's an opportunity to to kind of move up in our industry is a great thing. You know, there's, I think, you know, one of, I think one of the things that was really intriguing was back when, um, you know, the pandemic hit, you know, and, and everything went online. We we start to see we started to see a lot of people from across the the country show up to conferences and. I can just remember one of the first conferences, uh, or just really just like it was just it's just like a little symposium or something like that. Um, and it was it was actually a panel of people that came on, and one of the guys was uh, was a black guy. I'm trying to remember his name now. I had a real tip in my tongue. Um, God, what is that guy's name? Capella. Capella. His last name is Capella. I'm drawing a blank on his first name. Um, but at any rate, I, I saw him on the panel and I immediately messaged him on um on LinkedIn. I'm like, hey, I'm in this, I'm in this right now. And it's freaking amazing to see you. I did not know there were like black male BCBAs out there like that. And you're actually talking. I'm so excited. Um and we we had a nice little dialogue on there. But you know, it's a, I think just seeing people like that out there is just such a cool thing and really encouraging. I'm curious from your perspective, you know, 
do you feel the pressure now that you're in that role, right? Like in some ways you've kind of, you know, in a lot of ways, you and others have created this trail for people, right? Um, this pathway for them towards leadership roles. Do you feel pressure now that you're in the leadership role to kind of mentor and support and and give to those who maybe didn't have the same as what you have? So um, I wouldn't say it's pressure that I feel per se. I think really the, I guess what, what I'm feeling is more the, the re, like I, the realization of the, the barriers that are there and um, just understanding that there's a lot of work that needs to be done and a lot of uh, action that needs to take place to continue to help kind of even the playing field a little bit, you know? Um, so kind of going back to 2020, we, we did this really interesting thing where uh, we reached out to all of the black staff in our organization to pride and gain some understanding about from, from their perspective, what were some of the barriers to them wanting to become leaders, you know? Um, so we, we had uh, what was called the, the black voices forum. It, it, it was really interesting. We had you know, people across the country jump in uh, and basically interview them and ask them like, well, why or why not become a DCDA? Um, and, and the question was, or the answer wasn't that they don't want to be DCDAs. You know, obviously they, they all said they, you know, thought that it would be a really great career path. But the issue was that, you know, for one, cost was, was very prohibitive. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then kind of going back to what you mentioned earlier in terms of just like that, that perspective of not seeing themselves reflected in their leadership as a potential, like, Hey, maybe this isn't for me, you know? Um, so those were some of the things that were just like, Hey, I, I don't know if I should, those are the things that I, that won't help me or won't let me get there. Um, and so as we've kind of gone along, you know, we've been able to kind of try to remove some of those barriers, but, um, I think the thing that just keeps making, or I guess for me, like what makes it seem daunting is the fact that there's, there's not enough resources, you know, like, you know, or, or, or like I mentioned, uh, in our, so we had a little form that I filled out where we talked about, uh, what were some of the things that we wanted to discuss today. And, you know, the thing that immediately came to mind is just the the cost of tuition keeps increasing yeah. and, you know, yeah. we're trying to contribute to. Uh, folks that get, you know, scholarships to be able to attend these universities and get their degrees. But how can you do that when the cost keeps going up? You know, um, one of the other things is, you know, we, we, we put together this really great mentorship uh, package for our, for our scholarship, which is really awesome. Um, but what we really wanted to do was have our mentorship be like at a one-to-one ratio. So for every student, they would get assigned one mentor. Um, as things tended to, to grow, we ended up running out of mentors. And so our mentors ended up having to like do double, triple duty. It just gets, it got really, you know, uh, it's uh, complicated. You know, yeah. Yeah. So, so resources, you know, we more money, more people is right. really what we need or better relationships with universities. Yeah. 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 I want to interrupt you just for a second because I remember you and I talking about the mentorship piece of um, the Black Masters cohort. And I remember that being a sticking point for you. And you were like, this has to happen. Why was that so important for you? And why do you think that was so important for the for the program? 
And the reason it's, it's important is because when, when I think about my path, or I think about the path of other people like me, like it, it's important to have somebody that's been there before you that can help guide you. You know, this is a very unique space. And I, and I think about any like professional space, like there are things that are unique to that space that coming in at an entry-level position, like you don't know, you need coaching, you need guidance, you need to understand how to uh, be successful in those spaces. Um, and sure, some people might be able to figure it out on their own, but why not? Right. And so, um, you know, some people really believe that group mentorship is, is effective. And I think in some aspects it can be, but my, my personal experience has always been one-on-one mentorship and it was, uh, pivotal in, in me being able to get to where I am. And so if I could figure out a way to give people that same quality of mentorship, then I felt like I would be able to uh, come close and guarantee them being successful as well. Yeah. What were, I want to, I want to open the door, so to speak, or peek behind the curtain a little bit if I can, you know, you mentored multiple students, right? Um, What were some of the things without getting into any, anything confidential or anything, what were some of the things you talked about? Right. Or just yeah yeah no it's, it's a great question i mean and and I'll, I'll get i'll get deep with you i mean how how to outer perform in, in white spaces and be unapologetically you in white spaces those yeah. those are things that we we have to talk about um you know we often talk about we one of the things that we talked about was the uh the whole understand uh, how to how to really kind of reconceptualize what what we define as um and imposter syndrome mm. you know because you know people always talk about you know feeling like an imposter um and having to you know code switch and things like that um to be able to um excel and, and one of the things that we had to discuss was like is that how, how is that helpful to you as an individual um, because a lot of people end up having, you know, mental health issues from, from doing that to themselves, going, going through the process of doubting themselves, trying to not be authentically them, or excuse me, not being authentically themselves, um, in the spaces that they work in. Um, and so we really tried to shift that thinking and say, you know what, you don't need to think about being an imposter, like be yourself make sure people accept you for who you are you have valuable contributions and know that about yourself um so those were one of the things that we we discussed to just just we really wanted to make sure people were feeling empowered to be themselves um and and again kind of going back to me and my experience that was how i i have always felt like i could always be myself you know, I uh, can stumble across my words sometimes. I I have a potty mouth. Uh, you know what I mean? But I'm I I've never been chastised for it. I've always been allowed to to be me and and remain you know myself. And when you're able to do that, um, I feel like you're able to be be a cyclist. You know, yeah. when, when when we go back to you know client services for a second. Um, 
it was really helpful to to be myself uh, with the families that I was working with. You know, I, a lot of the clients that I worked with were um, from, you know, inner city areas, social economic status was generally pretty low. And, you know, being able to communicate with them, I was able to, you know, make a lot of, make a lot of bonds and find a lot of commonalities and then be able to deliver services in a much more effective manner. Um, and so again, I mean, just being able to be yourself really tends to pay off a lot. Yeah. A lot of aspects, you know, I'm thinking about as you're describing this, I'm thinking about you and, and the different places I've seen you and how I feel like you're the same across, right? I've seen you at home with your family. I've seen you at restaurants. I've seen you at conferences. I've seen you presenting. I've seen you being an audience member, a student, right? Like, and to know that you are the same across all of those, I think that's a, that's a treat, right? And I think it's a treat for us, the people around you. But I also imagine for a lot of the people in your cohort that you've been mentoring, that that's hard to do, especially, you know, when you're talking about code switching, right? Wow. Who am I supposed to be in this space versus that space versus with this group versus with that group? I'm, I'm overwhelmed just thinking about that now. And I'm not even, I don't, I haven't experienced that. Right. But that's, that's hard. Like, Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, like you mentioned, like just being able to let that go. Um, that's, that's one less Thing to think about that can allow you to to focus on what you are truly aiming to do, which is to affect change in the people that have been placed in front of you. So, yeah. I want to go back for a second. Um, you were talking about the Black Masters cohort in particular, and um, the partnerships with some universities. I'm curious, what were some of the barriers that you faced getting this started? And what were some of the barriers that you faced recently through iterations of that of that cohort? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think getting it started was when I want to think back to it. Honestly, the whole process was pretty invigorating um, from from the process of you know talking with our board members to be able to get the funding while simultaneously uh, courting the university to allow us to to do something like that. Um, it the the fact that it all worked out was was pretty amazing. Um, when I think about the barriers to getting it off the ground, I don't I don't think there were too many. You know that we really utilized the unfortunate momentum of uh, George Floyd's murder to really kind of catapult this. I think everybody was really um, was really ready to to help you know when we think about think back to you know that time and how everyone was feeling with you know the, the black squares on their instagram accounts and you know everybody had their dei statements on their web page and stuff like that you know i think a lot of folks were like hey we don't want to be those those performative people like we want to put our money where our mouth is essentially and so that i think that was where both us as a organization and the university that we partnered with at the time were, you know, we, we came across some really great people um, at the time that were ready to get to work. Um, what was interesting though, like the people that we worked with from that university, um, kind of kind of similar to myself, like they they grew within their organization. Yep. Um, and, and we ended up encountering some new folks, you know, 
Um, and, you know, as, as things change, you know, fires tend to kind of you know, dwindle a little bit. Um, I think nowadays, at, at least the universities that we're, we're, we're working with or we're trying to work with, um, I don't think they're as on fire for the initiatives as they were yeah. back then, you know. Um, specifically, what's happened is now they're requesting um, an increase in cohort sizes, which would ideally be okay. In, in, in a perfect world, um, sure, we would love to be able to provide you with uh, 20 cohort members on a quarterly basis. Um, that would, you know, considerably considering we were doing like five people per cohort twice a year um that would change our numbers from uh 10 people a year to 80 people a year essentially um and again thinking about what we were trying to do from a mentorship perspective and placing uh you know one mentor with one student um we would then have to find 80 uh mentors yeah. to, to place these folks like theoretically using our, right. our our previous model um so that was one thing um in addition to that um tuition rates uh were going to increase uh by 20 percent um and then they also decreased our uh our discount from oh, yeah. so we, we we had a nice cushion discount yeah, we we had, I don't know if I'm supposed to share those numbers, but yeah, we had a, <laughs> is it okay? Can I throw that number out there? Like, yeah, sure. I mean, we we had a fifty percent tuition discount, uh, which was fantastic. I don't think any university out there uh, at the time was willing to offer us a twenty percent discount, but that university, and so I'm forever grateful for that. Um, but they 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 wanted to slash that um in half to to 25%. Um so yeah, it, it is from from a financial perspective, um increasing the the number of participants by a significant margin plus the increase in tuition just seemed pretty that, daunting. Um, I mean graduate school is expensive anyway and you know you throw in the amount of work it takes and for some folks, I know when I was in graduate school, I was working two jobs, right? So right. two jobs on top of that, plus having to save the money, plus, 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 it just becomes the barriers to entry just become exclusive, right? And, exactly. and people can't get in. Um, exactly. Yeah. I have a question for you, not about necessarily the field of ABA, just about DEI as a whole. Um, yeah. I feel like kind of the DEI movement is getting quieter. Like I'm seeing headlines of people moving away from it. I'm seeing uh, less to, you know, to use your words, like there's not the fire, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I just, I don't see it happening as much in different industries, ours inclu included. Why do you think that's why do you think that's changing now? I, I think it's a I think it's a multi-factor thing. Um, to to put it plainly, uh, you know, obviously, like I mentioned, you know, I think everyone was really on on fire when when everything happened with George Floyd. I think that was at least I think that was the biggest like 
um, antecedent for what really kicked off uh, the big push for DEI. Um, but, you know, as the political climate has changed in, in recent years, I think that's what's really kind of impacted people's perspectives on it. You know, um, there's been a couple of uh, lawsuits in, in recent time where uh, people are saying, hey, this this DEI initiative is discriminatory on other uh, on, on, on others from other ethnic backgrounds. You know, so that's that's been one of the things. So there's there's you know, some legal issues that I think are stemming some companies and corporations away from DEI initiatives. Um, and I, I think it's really unfortunate, man, because at the end of the day, I think the, the reality of the situation is uh, across the country, there are clear and obvious data that tell us that there's a need for this type of stuff. You know, um, there's historical data that tells us that, um, you know, marginalized groups have less opportunities to progress in this country. And so if organizations have an opportunity to find some opportunities in, in marginalized communities to, you know, help people and as added benefit also help their bottom line, why wouldn't they do it? You know what I mean? Right. Um, yeah. Why not? Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, we were talking about the barriers to entry, right? If you can eliminate one or two or even just help make it not as big of a barrier, it makes sense. And, yeah. you know, and I think one of the things you and I have talked about is the more inclusive we are as a community, right? As, as a field, as an industry, right? The more we can be inclusive when it comes to the their clients that we support and their families. Absolutely. And the patient care changes, right? Um, and all of a sudden, we're not just shifting the staff's perspective, but we're also helping the community in a different way. And um, and I think sometimes that gets overlooked, right? Because, because everyone's, it's just hard, right? And I, not to make an excuse, um, but I, that's, that's one thing I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting you bring that up. I was having a conversation with someone the other day about um, just that idea of doing things because they're hard or challenging, right? Um, what, what, what was that uh, that phrase that they said about the reason why we're going to the moon? We don't we don't do things because they're easy. We do things because they're hard, right? Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. I I uh, I like the challenge. Um, yeah. you know, I, and I would like to assume that most of us that are in this field of ABA aren't here because we think this work is easy, right? Um, this, this is a challenging job and, and, uh, the, the whole idea of DEI diversity, diversity, equity, and inclusion, those are difficult and, and challenging concepts and, yeah, well, let, let's just dig into it. Like, let's 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 make the world a better place. Yeah, roll up you know the sleeves, I mean? let's get into yeah, it. Yeah, let's let's yeah, yeah, let's go dirty. It's okay. Like, we'll we'll, we'll be better at the end of it. Yeah, um, but I really, it, it does take a, a a level of humility and 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 self reflectiveness to be able to you know acknowledge like, hey, there's 
some things that need to be corrected and changed and then do it. Yeah. It's funny you bring up humility because I want to brag on you for just a second. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I thinking about the successes you've had as an individual, the successes you've had um, certainly in your current role, but also just some that have shifted the field, right? So you spearheading DEI initiatives, of course, at Learn, right? That's been a big one, but also you presenting at the inaugural Black Applied Behavior Analyst Conference, um, right? Like what? That's a big deal. You can smile about it. It's cool. that, was, that was fun, man. That was, what, that was really cool. What do those moments mean to you personally? That that was really fun, man. Because um, you know, it, it was the opportunity to to be a part of something that was, was that is groundbreaking in our industry. I think back to um, I think back to the ancestors, right? I think back to my papa, God bless his soul. Um, I think back to, you know, everybody that came before him, you know, just, you know, pushing the envelope, doing things for the community. Um, and that's what that was, on, that was, that was what that was about. You know, uh, you had ACM Bradley on here a, a long time ago. And um, yep. at the time she was the president of Baba. Um, and, you know, she was very intrigued about what we were doing at Learn with the Black Masters cohort. Um, and she was, you know, quite blown away that we were able to convince a a company that is uh, massive, that's backed by funding equity, to actually put money into a scholarship for marginalized communities to go and get their degrees. And so it's just like, can you tell me how you did it? Because we want more people, I want more people to be able to do this with their companies. And so of course, like, yeah, why not? Let's, let's go. So I, I, I put it together and I put it out there and, um, the, the, just to, just to get, just to get feedback on that presentation. That was my first conference that I, that I spoke at. Um, I was so nervous. I'm shaking. <laughs> really? Oh, dude, I was nervous as hell. <laughs> I was so nervous. Um, I don't think I've ever seen you nervous. So the way you're describing it, it just it sounds funny. It sounds funny to me because I you're always like <laughs> cool as cucumber. But anyway, dude, my voice was shaking. Um, I I was stumbling over my words for a little bit. Um. Yeah, it was rough. It was rough to 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 kind of get started, but once I got into the flow, um, I, I saw some familiar people. Um, it was all online. That definitely made it easier. But I saw some familiar names in the uh, the attendees list. I'm like, okay, this is this is fine. Um, but the, you know, at the end of it, I, I I saw that there was like over 250 people in attendance at that, uh, and I was just like, well, that's that's insane, man. But I, I had a ton of people reaching out and asking about, you know how they can get mentorship groups off the ground at their respective organizations. Uh, and I'm talking like heavy hitters in the industry reaching out. And I was like, this is, this is amazing, man. Like people really want to talk to me to find out about this stuff. Um, and yeah, it, it, it just went, it went great. Man. So yeah, I loved it. yeah it was a fun I wanted time. to take a minute to celebrate <laughs> doing that. Right. I know that that's, yeah. that's not, that's not something you get to do every day. And it's a big deal. I think it's a big deal for everybody involved. And obviously you, you see that when people are reaching out and they want to have the conversation. 
Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. We've talked a bit about the Black Master Black Masters cohort. Um, how does that help others? You know, what, what's the next iteration, right? Let's say we get another another group going. How how can we help others in the BIPOC community and other marginalized groups? Yeah, no, that's that's exactly it. I mean, it's it's been really successful. I think. I mean, though the numbers are are smaller, we we do want to start expanding this to to other groups. And when we think about uh, you know the demographics that we we service across the the country what what we wanted to do next is just open it up to just anyone that can speak a language other than english you know where america is a melting pot and there are a lot of folks that speak different languages um and we have a lot of bts that speak those languages but not a lot of bcdas that speak those languages so let's lift those voices up, give those folks the opportunity to service those populations as well. Because we we know the the greatness and the goodness that ABA can do for folks. So wh- why not do it in, in a thousand different languages? So that's that's the that's the next step. So that's what that's what we really want to do. Um and again it's kind of going back to what we talked about earlier with the Barcelona barriers. We, we we need to find a university that wants to partner with this somebody that that sees this as as a need within the field and, and wants to help yeah i hear that i mean i i'm thinking again about the number of families who have waited for services to get services in a language that's not their native language and then they're child is maybe not progressing in the same way, but it's because they're trying to learn English at the same time. They're trying to navigate autism and, you know, mm-hmm. other, you know, inhibiting factors. And then how can you do parent education when I'm speaking a language that they don't speak in the home and I, I could put together the best program or the worst program and I can't communicate it. Right. Um, and that's, that's a disservice to the family, right. And, and Absolutely. the community by extension. Absolutely. You're, you're hundred percent right. Um, one of the things that I'm also trying to get back off the ground um, is, is community outreach. Um, so those were some of the other pillars that was really focused on um, like pre-2020. Um, I, was, I was part of this this crew. Uh, we, we were we were the, the social justice warriors before there was a term. Uh, we called her, we called ourselves, uh, the revolutionaries. Um, and what we were doing was, um, trying to identify like micro communities within the regions that we, we worked in, um, to try to like find new staff, um, and also try to do outreach to, to families that were in underserved areas to kind of spread the good news of ABA to let them know like, hey, this is a, a service that could be really helpful for your families. Um, and, you know, when when the pandemic hit, like that kind of like put a pause on all of that. So, um, you know, now that things have definitely stabilized a little bit um, and my expense has grown considerably uh, from South LA all the way up to now Bakersfield, um, we're, we're really trying to roll that, roll that red carpet out in all of these, all these communities now. Um, so we're, we're identifying like, you know, local universities, community colleges, high school. We're trying to talk to, uh, you know, guidance counselors, um, 
to, to find folks that know about what this role is. Um, so, you know, perhaps we can find some of these uh, young people that speak some of these languages that want to do this work. They want to roll up their sleeves, get dirty, and, and do this stuff. Um, and maybe they, they see themselves or see me and they see themselves and they, they want to do this work. Yeah, and I think that's that's twofold, right? Not only do they get the opportunity to learn about the work, but like a lot of people don't know that this type of work exists, right? And I think that's that's one of the beauties I see in you doing the community outreach is some people don't even know how to get help or where to get help, but, and they also don't know how to do the work or where to go to do the work. They don't even know that this exactly. is there and how, how do you Google search that, right? Um, 110%. I, I, you know, I think back to um, high school um, and my guidance counselor, just like suggesting that I, I, I seek out trade school. Uh, and, and just like, how cool would it have been like if back then even, like she right. knew that, you know, the field of ABA was out there and maybe you should try to be a behavior technician. Have you ever considered that? Um, you know, and and uh, again, just thinking about like some of the technicians that we have today, uh, fresh out of high school, making a significant impact with their clients, yeah. who just by happenstance happen to fall into our field. Like let's get them, let's get them fresh out of high school, starting in this field and working, man. Like it's, they can do great work. So Brandon, what do you see happening in our industry that's showing the progress that we're making in our DEI efforts? Like what's been happening in the last few years that that shows we're making improvements. Mm. Yeah, that's, yeah, I mean, that's a really great thought. I mean, one of the things that I, I, I you know, I added in my mind and mentioned, but I didn't get a chance to mention, which is that some of the conferences that I've been to recently. So there was the, um, the social justice summit that took place in Oakland back in December. And it, it was just a really great opportunity. Um, Sean Capella, that was the gentleman I was trying to mention to you guys earlier. Uh, he was present. There was uh, Danielle Deal, a lot of these uh, presenters that have been pretty heavy in the DEI space as of late. Uh, they were all there. I was put on by Cat Labo. Um, and there was, it was a really small, intimate uh, summit, but the content in there was great. And I think, you know, when we talk about like what has DEI done like recently with just within the, the framework of ABA, I think just seeing more of that included um, in conferences, in the discussion. You know, uh, Calaba this past uh, February, um, we saw a, a ton more diverse speakers, um, which which in the past had not really been the case. You know, um, I think just one of the other pieces that I think a lot of people tend to not really think about when we talk about DEI is just the inclusion of a lot of other marginalized peoples, you know, like having uh, a, a ton of advocacy surrounding, you know, people from disabled groups, like, you know, seeing more stuff in terms of like, um, oh, what, what am I thinking about here? Uh, when we talk like about neurodivergence. Yeah, you're seeing more neurodivergent conversations. You're seeing a lot more uh, people-centered care stuff coming about. Like, I think that is all coming about due to like the push for for more DEI in our space. Um, so I think that's been one of the really great things that kind of turned about that I think was really kind of 
unintentional, if I'm being honest. Uh, definitely because of a byproduct, and I'm I'm really happy for it. Um, it's, it's been it's been great seeing seeing more neurodiverse people presenting at, at conferences, um, seeing more more uh, more African American women speaking at these conferences, seeing more Black men at these conferences because I feel like sometimes we're 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 really overlooked because uh, you know you barely see men as it is uh, in the in the scope of ABAs, but you know now we're seeing more more Black men in ABAs. Uh, I'm, I'm part of this. Uh, Black males in ABA group on on Facebook now, and and we meet monthly. So there, I mean, there's these things that are, are coming about now, which is which is amazing, and which I, I never would have seen happening back in like 2009, 2010. Like I wouldn't even couldn't even fathom. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of new stuff out there. And before before we go. Um, I always appreciate these conversations and I feel like you're always open and vulnerable with me and I appreciate that and, and with our with our audience as well. What can I be doing or what can we be doing to be better allies and how can our community support you in a better way? Oh, that's a good question. And I'll say this. I, I think the best way to be an ally is to listen. Um, create create a environment where people feel like you genuinely want to know what they have to say, and that you're not immediately going to tell them that they're wrong and have a differing opinion. You know, and if even if you do have a differing opinion, I think just finding ways to say it in a safe manner to be able to, you know, keep that environment safe so there can be further further discussions. You know, I, I think a lot of marginalized folks just feel like being vulnerable is a unsafe thing and leaves them open to danger um and so a lot of times it can be really guarded right and so i think for for you just creating that though that environment for folks to feel like you can truly engage in safe open dialogue is, is the first step you know because once you do that i mean the sky is the limit you know a lot of things can get solved a lot of good work can be done but if if people just feel unsafe to share their true thoughts and feelings, then, you know, you're not going to be able to get anything done. So I, that, that would be my, my recommendation, man. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that ton of other people might have different suggestions. Like, hey, do this, do that. But I think, I think for me, at, at least, that's who I'll speak for. I'll speak for myself. I think having a, a safe environment to feel that, you know, the, the, the jumbled word soup that occasionally comes out of my mouth will, will not be judged too harshly because it's coming from a good place because I, I feel like I can say things without being chastised or penalized for it. I appreciate that. Anytime you want to have word soup, <laughs> I'm happy to have that conversation. And I appreciate that honest answer, right? I appreciate that vulnerability. I think um, 
I'm better for the insights you've shared with me. And I think our audience is better too. Thanks for doing the work you're doing, Brandon. Keep it up. Hey, appreciate it, man. Thank you. And thanks for allowing me to be part of it too. <laughs> you're, you're amazing. You're, okay. you're a good guy, Richie. You know it. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate <laughs> it. I hope you had some good takeaways from that conversation with Brandon Whitfield. He continues to inspire me both personally and professionally. And I really want to leave you with his words that we all should have the goal of creating a safe space and being good listeners to those around us so that they can share their thoughts and experiences without judgment. If we can do that and we can create that environment for people, then they have the opportunity to be authentically and unapologetically themselves. And that's something we should all strive for. To learn more about the DEI and neurodiversity efforts at Learn Behavioral, visit the culture section on the Learn Behavioral website or click the link in the show notes. As always, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Therapies. And if you have a suggestion or other feedback, feel free to send us a message at our website at allautismtalk.com. Until next time, take care. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.